0: Chapter Nineteen of the Fortunes of Glencore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. The Fortunes of Glencore by Charles James Lever. Chapter Nineteen The Cascine at Florence. It was spring, and in Italy one of those half-dozen days at very most when the feeling of winter departed a gentle freshness breathes through the air trees stir softly and as if by magic the earth becomes carpeted with flowers whose odours seem to temper as it were the exciting atmosphere an occasional cloud fleecy and jagged sails lazily aloft marking its shadow on the mountain side in a few days a few hours perhaps the blue sky will be unbroken, the air hushed, a hot breath will move among the leaves or pant over the trickling fountains. In this fast flitting period, we dare not call it season, the Cascine of Florence is singularly beautiful. On one side, the gentle river stealing past beneath the shadowing foliage, on the other, the picturesque mountains toward Fiesole, dotted with its palaces and terraced gardens. The ancient city itself is partly seen, and the massive Duomo and the Palazzo Vecchio tower proudly above the trees. What other people of Europe have such a haunt? What other people would know so thoroughly how to enjoy it? The day was drawing to a close, and the piazzone was now filled with equipage. There were the representatives of every European people and of nations far away overseas. Splendid Russians, brilliant French, splenetic, supercilious English, and ponderous Germans mingled with the less marked nationalities of Belgium and Holland, and even America. Everything that called itself fashion was there to swell the tide, and although a choice military band was performing with exquisite skill the favorite overtures of the day, the noise and tumult of conversation almost drowned their notes now the cascine is to the world of society what the bourse is to the world of trade it is the great centre of all news and intelligence where markets and bargains of intercourse are transacted and where the scene of past pleasure is revived and the plans of future enjoyment are canvassed the great and the wealthy are there to see and meet with each other the proud equipage lie side by side like great liners while phaetons like fast frigates shoot swiftly by and solitary dandies flit past in varieties of conveyance to which seacraft can offer no analogies. All are busy, eager, and occupied. Scandal holds here its festival, and the misdeeds of every capital of Europe are now being discussed. The higher themes of politics occupy but few, the interests of literature attract still less. It is essentially of the world they talk, and it must be owned they do it like adept the last witticism of Paris, the last duel at Berlin, who has fled from his creditors in England, who has run away from her husband at Naples, all are retailed with a serious circumstantiality that would lead one to believe that gossip maintained its own correspondent in every city of the continent. Moralists might fancy, perhaps, that in the tone these subjects are treated they would mingle a reprobation of the bad and a due estimate of the opposite, if it ever occurred at all. But as surely they would be disappointed. Never were censors more lenient, never were critics so charitable. The transgressions against good breeding, the gaucherie of manner, the solecisms in dress, language, or demeanour, do indeed meet with sharp reproof and cutting sarcasm. But in recompense for such severity, how gently do they deal with graver offences? For the felonies, they can always discover the attenuating circumstances. For the petty larcenies of fashion, they have nothing but whipcord. Amid the various knots where such discussions were carried on, one was eminently conspicuous. It was around a handsome open carriage, whose horses, harnessing, and liveries were all in the most perfect taste. The equipage might possibly have been deemed showy in Hyde Park but in the Bois de Bologna or the Cascine it must be pronounced the Acme of Elegance. Whatever might have been the differences of national opinion on this point, there could assuredly have been none as to the beauty of those who occupied it. Though a considerable interval of years divided them, the aunt and her niece had a wonderful resemblance to each other. They were both the rarest of all forms of beauty—blonde Italians, that is, with light hair and soft grey They had a peculiar tint of skin, deeper and mellower than we see in northern lands, and an expression of mingled seriousness and softness that only pertains to the south of Europe. There was a certain coquetry in the similarity of their dress, which in many parts was precisely alike, and although the niece was but fifteen and the aunt above thirty, it needed not the aid of flattery to make many mistake one for the other. Beauty, like all other beaux arts, has its distinctions the same public opinion that enthrones the sculptor or the musician confers its crown on female loveliness and by this acclaim they were declared queens of beauty to any one visiting italy for the first time there would have seemed something very strange in the sort of homage rendered them a reverence and respect only accorded elsewhere to royalties a deference that verged on actual humiliation and yet all this blended with a subtle familiarity that none but an Italian can ever attain to. The uncovered head, the attitude of respectful attention, the patient expectancy of notice, the glad air of him under recognition were all there, and yet, through these, there was dashed a strange note of intimacy, as though the observances were but a thin crust over deeper feelings. La Contessa, for she was especially the Countess, as one illustrious man of our own country was—the Duke—possessed every gift which claims preeminence in this fair city. She was eminently beautiful, young, charming in her manners, with ample fortune, and lastly—ah, good reader, you would be surely puzzled to supply that lastly, the more as we say that in it lies an excellence without which all the rest are of little worth, and yet with it are objects of worship, almost of adoration— she was separated from her husband. There must have been an epidemic, a kind of rot among husbands at one period, for we scarcely remember a very pretty woman, from five and twenty to five and thirty, who had not been obliged to leave hers from acts of cruelty or acts of brutality, etc., that only husbands are capable of, or of which their poor wives are ever the victims. If the moral geography of Europe be ever written— the region south of the Alps will certainly be coloured with that tint, whatever it be, that describes the blessedness of a divorced existence. In other lands, especially in our own, the separated individual labours under no common difficulty in his advances to society. The story, there must be a story, of his separation is told in various ways, all, of course, to his disparagement. Tyrant or victim, it is hard to say under which title he comes out best. So much for the man, but for the woman there is no plea. Judgment is pronounced at once, without the merits. Fugitive or fled from, who inquires? She is one that few men dare to recognize. The very fact that to mention her name exacts an explanation is condemnatory, What a boon to all such must it be that there is a climate mild enough for their malady, and a country that will suit their constitution. Not only that, but a region which actually pays homage to their infirmity, and makes of their martyrdom a triumph. As you go to Norway for salmon-fishing, and to Bengal to hunt tigers, to St. Petersburg to eat caviar, so when divorced, if you really know the blessing of your state, go take a house on the Arno. Vast as are the material resources of our globe, the moral ones are infinitely greater. Nor need we despair, some day or other, of finding an island where a certificate of fraudulent bankruptcy would be deemed a letter of credit, and an evidence of insolvency be accepted as qualification to open a bank. La Contessa inhabited a splendid palace, furnished with magnificence. Her gardens were one of the sights of the capital, not only for their floral display, but that they contained a celebrated group by Canova, of which no copy existed. Her gallery was, if not extensive, enriched with some priceless treasures of art, and with all these she possessed high rank, for her card bore the name of la Contessa de Glencore, née Contessa della Torre. The reader thus knows at once, if not actually as much as we do ourselves, all that we mean to impart to him and now let us come back to that equipage around which swarmed the fashion of florence eagerly pressing forward to catch a word a smile or even a look and actually perched on every spot from which they could obtain a glimpse of those within a young russian prince with his arm in a sling had just recited the incident of his late duel a neapolitan minister had delivered a rose-coloured epistle from a royal highness of his own court the Spanish grandee had deposited his offering of camellias, which actually covered the front cushions of the carriage, and now a little lane was formed for the approach of the old Duc de Brignol, who made his advance with a mingled courtesy and haughtiness that told of Versailles and long ago. A very creditable specimen of the old noblesse of France was the Duke, and well worthy to be the grandson of one who was grand Marechal to Louis XIV tall, thin, and slightly stooped from age, his dark eyes seemed to glisten the brighter between his shaggy white eyebrows. He had served with distinction as a soldier, and had been an ambassador to the court of Tsar Paul. In every station he had filled, sustaining the character of a true and loyal gentleman, a man who could reflect nothing but honour upon the great country he belonged to. It was among the scandal of Florence that he was the most devoted of la comtesse's admirers but we are quite willing to believe that his admiration had nothing in it of love. At all events she distinguished him by her most marked notice. He was the frequent guest of her choicest dinners, and the constant visitor at her evenings at home. It was, then, with a degree of favour that many an envious heart coveted, she extended her hand to him as he came forward, which he kissed with all the lowly deference he would have shown to that of his prince mon cher duc said she smiling i have such a store of grievances to lay at your door the essence of violets is not violets but verbena charming Contessa. i had it directly from pierrot's pierrot is a traitor then that's all and where is ida's arab is he to be here to-day or to-morrow when are we to see him why, I only wrote to the emir on Tuesday last. Mais à quoi bon l'émir, if he can't do impossibilities? Surely the very thought of him brings up the Arabian nights and Caliph Haroun. By the way, thank you for the poignard. It is true Damascus, is it not? Of course I'd not have dared— To be sure not. I told the Archdessus it was. I wore it in my Turkish dress on Wednesday, and you, false man, wouldn't come to admire me you know what a sad day that was for me madame said he solemnly it was the anniversary of her fate who was your only rival in beauty as she had no rival in undeserved misfortunes oh, oh, reine, sighed the countess and held her bouquet to her face what great mass of papers is it that you have there duke resumed she can it be a journal it is an english newspaper my dear countess and as I know you do not receive any of his countrymen, I have not asked your permission to present the Lord Selby, but hearing him read out your name in a paragraph here, I carried off his paper to have it translated for me. You read English, don't you? Very imperfectly, and I detest it,' said she impatiently. "'But Prince Volkovsky can, I am sure, oblige you.' And she turned away her head, in ill-humour. "'It is here somewhere. Parbleu. I thought I marked the place,' muttered the Duke as he handed the paper to the Russian. "'Isn't that it?' "'This is all about theatres, Madame Pasta and the Haymarket.' "'Ah, well, it's lower down. Here, perhaps.' "'Court news. The Grand Duke of Saxe-Weimar. No, no, not that. Oh, here it is. Great scandal in high life.' A very singular correspondence has just passed, and will soon, we believe, be made public, between the Herald's College and Lord Glencore. Here the reader stopped and lowered his voice at the next word. Read on, Prince. C'est mon mari,' said she coldly, while a very slight movement of her upper lip betrayed what might mean scorn or sorrow or even both. The prince, however, had now run his eyes over the paragraph, and, crushing the newspaper in his hand, hurried away from the spot. The duke as quickly followed, and soon overtook him. "'Who gave you this paper, duke?' cried the Russian angrily. "'It was Lord Selby. He was reading it aloud to a friend.' "'Then he is an infame.' "'And I'll tell him so,' cried the other passionately. "'Which is he? The one with the light moustache, or the shorter one?' and without waiting for reply the Russian dashed between the carriages, and thrusting his way through the prancing crowd of moving horses, arrived at a spot where two young men, evidently strangers to the scene, were standing, calmly surveying the bright panorama before them. "'The Lord Selby,' said the Russian, taking off his hat and saluting one of them. "'That's his lordship,' replied the one he addressed, pointing to his friend. "'I am the Prince Volkovsky, Ed de camp to the emperor said the russian and hearing from my friend the duc de brignolles that you have just given him this newspaper that he might obtain the translation of a passage in it which concerns lady glencore and have the explanation read out at her own carriage publicly before all the world i desire to tell you that your lordship is unworthy of your rank that you are an infam, and if you do not resent this a polisson this man is mad selby "'said the short man, with the coolest air imaginable. "'Quite sane enough to give your friend a lesson in good manners, "'and you too, sir, if you have a fancy for it,' said the Russian. "'I'd give him in charge to the police, by Jove, if there were police here,' "'said the same one who spoke before. "'He can't be a gentleman.' "'There's my card, sir,' said the Russian. "'And for you too, sir?' said he, presenting another to him who spoke. "'Where are you to be heard of?' said the short man. "'At the Russian legation,' said the prince haughtily, and turned away. "'You're wrong, Bainton. He is a gentleman,' said Lord Selby as he pocketed the card, "'though certainly he is not a very mild-tempered specimen of his order.' "'You didn't give the newspaper, as he said?' "'Nothing of the kind. I was reading it aloud to you when the royal carriages came suddenly past, and in taking off my hat to salute I never noticed that the old Duke had carried off the paper.' "'I know he can't read English, and chances are "'he has asked this Scythian gentleman to interpret for him.' "'So then the affair is easily settled,' said the other quietly. "'Of course it is,' was the answer, "'and they both lounged about among the carriages, "'which already were thinning, "'and after a while set out towards the city. "'They had just reached the hotel "'when a stranger presented himself as the Comte de Marny. "'He had come as the friend of Prince volkovsky who had fully explained to him the event of that afternoon. "'Well,' said Bayton, "'we are of opinion that your friend has conducted himself exceedingly ill, and we are here to receive his excuses.' "'I am afraid, monsieur,' said the Frenchman, bowing, "'that it will exhaust your patience if you continue to wait for them. "'Might it not be better to come and accept what he is quite prepared to offer you? "'Satisfaction?' "'Be it so,' said Lord Selby, He'll see his mistake some time or other, and perhaps regret it. Where shall it be, and when? At the Fossombroni villa, about two miles from this. To-morrow morning at eight, if that suit you. Quite well, I have no other appointment. Pistols, of course. You have the choice, otherwise my friend would have preferred the sword. Take him at his word, Selby, whispered Bayton. You are equal to any of them with the rapier. If your friend desire the sword, I have no objection, I mean the rapier. The rapier be it, said the Frenchman, and with a polite assurance of the infinite honour he felt in forming their acquaintance, and the gratifying certainty that they were sure to possess of his highest consideration, he bowed, backed, and withdrew. Well-mannered fellow, the Frenchman, said Bainton, as the door closed, and the other nodded assent, and rang the bell for dinner. End of chapter 19